They were days of glory and gold. If I could use a single word to describe Berlin during that period of time, the word would be carnival. As U.S. sprinter Marty Glickman remembers it, the view was grand for those two weeks in August of 1936, as Berlin hosted the world's greatest athletes for the 11th Olympic Games. International visitors were warmly welcomed, but behind the pomp and pageantry were ominous signs. The swastika was all over. On virtually every other banner we saw, there was a swastika. The benefit of hindsight and history helps us see these were more than just games. These weren't the Berlin Olympics. These were the Nazi Olympics. This week we are thinking about Olympism and the nation state. And we're doing this in a few different ways. The first is the 1936 Olympics. We'll talk about that. But I want to continue thinking about the sportive politic. The ways that we're thinking about the opiate of the state versus the opiate of the people, that comes into play very clearly for all of my, everyone loved Redeker. So we'll think about what Redeker's saying in terms of thinking about the opiate of the state and what it means to play warfare, what it means to be at war with a country and compete against them in sport. The cast piece is interesting in thinking about the 1936 Olympics, what could have happened, what should have happened, um, is very much up for debate still. Um, how the United States, for example, should have reacted to the Olympics being held in Nazi Germany. What it means to compete under a Nazi regime as a way of pushing back against the logics of race, for example, or religion. Versus boycotting as a way to say we do not align with you in any particular way. Is it better to go and win or stay at home and boycott? Germany was originally allowed to keep the 1936 Olympics because they said they would allow Jewish athletes on the national team. And as we see throughout the piece, um, in, in Germany saying that they can prove they are discriminating against Jewish athletes, we see that that's obviously very false. One athlete, Helene Meyer, was allowed to compete in fencing to quote-unquote prove there was no discrimination amongst organizing committees under Nazi Germany as the IOC and other countries begin to get concerned about the state of Jewish folks in the country. What we now know is that Jewish athletes were not allowed to train at Olympic facilities, that Jewish athletes that were considered quote-unquote non-Aryans were deprived of citizenship so that they could not compete for Germany. And when pushed on it, the same script was flipped on the U.S., pointing out that black athletes could not freely compete across the country and acknowledging that the NCAA championships relocated to Nebraska from New Orleans for this very reason. So there's four arguments that I want to point out that are used to justify the 1936 Olympics being in Berlin under Nazi Germany. The first is a verdict from the U.S. Olympic Committee who says that they won't press Germany because they basically acknowledge they're racist as well. There's a very poignant way that it's written where there is reference to not only lynching that's happening in the American South, as well as Japanese internment camps on the West Coast. The U.S. Olympic Committee's unwillingness to immediately boycott is based upon this. The second argument, the logics of, well, if we don't let them go to the anti-Semitic Olympics, then we'll make more people anti-Semitic here. To say that the United States shouldn't go to Berlin because then everyone will blame Jewish folks in the States and elsewhere, is a pretty empty logical fallacy, but it's used. The third argument is the need to keep Olympics separate from politics. This will be the larger overarching narrative 
for this week. This idea of keeping Olympics separate from politics is something that, as we see from the beginning of the Olympics, was never possible. But it's an argument leveraged in terms of understanding once we address the racism, the logics that are operating in Germany, we'll then have to reckon with our own homes. We'll have, then have to say, what if the U.S. can't ever host an Olympics until they end racism? Or what do we do when there's ethnic cleansing in a country, when there's genocide in a country? What is the role of the Olympics versus other organizations like the United Nations, for example? The fourth argument is that sending a team to Berlin will disprove racist pseudoscience. Germany's response to all this is that German sports are for Aryans. That's pretty much their line. They're only willing to hide as much as they need to in order to host the Olympics. And much of the ceremonial things that we think about for the Olympics originate in the 1936 Olympics, where the cast argues that Hitler made, quote, sport and arm a political propaganda to an extent that had never before been attempted, end quote. And that's on page 233 of that text. In the end, 49 nations, including the United States, came to Berlin for the Nazi Olympics and watched as Aryan athletes followed in the footsteps of the ancient Greeks, bringing fire from Mount Olympus in the first ever Olympic torch relay. The torch run relay was the perfect event for them, and they had such a superb propaganda machine that they were able to exploit it in every way to get the maximum propaganda value out of it. Jesse Owens is echoed across these pieces as kind of this example of beating white supremacy, of beating Nazi Germany. Cass writes, Jesse Owens' victories were hard to accept as Hitler refused to congratulate Owens as he did all his German victors. Although Germany came away with the most gold medals, their Aryan supremacy was dealt a severe blow by the Americans. Therefore, the American attendance at the Berlin Olympics was essential. That's on page 35. And I just want to ask, is that true? Was it essential? Was that the only way that one could go about addressing this idea of Aryan supremacy? And I say this in the context when we think about the Capone Tiberi piece on the 1936 Olympics, that in 1933, the first concentration camp opened in Germany. Avery Brundage visits in 1934 when he's the head of the USOC, U.S. Olympic Committee, and he calls it a Jew-Nazi altercation. He calls this conflict an altercation. Now, he goes a year after a concentration camp has opened, and that is not to say that he actually saw or visited the concentration camp. But he also says, quote, certain Jews must now understand they cannot use these games as a weapon in their boycott against the Nazis. Now, when I'm thinking about this in terms of the conversation regarding boycotting or going to the games, we have the cast argument that the American attendance at the Olympics was essential. And I want to start from the premise that when Avery Brundage goes to visit and Avery Brundage, as we no, um, later becomes the president of the IOC. We'll talk about him a lot um, next on the next podcast. That will be his major episode. Um, but understanding that as a concentration camp is opening, it's being framed within the U.S. context as a Jew Nazi altercation, and the Olympics is leveraged as a weapon in their boycott. So we now understand, in hindsight, of course, this was more than a boycott or an altercation. However, at the time, we know that the AAU, the NAACP, and some newspapers openly supported a boycott. They're all trying to decide what to do. Should they go? Did that mean that they would be somehow putting a stamp of approval on a regime that many people 
felt was abhorrent, um, or was it just a sporting contest? Now, this is really becomes complicated when we think about the African-American athlete at the 1936 Olympics, which is the focus of Kaboni Tiberi's piece. His win was complete, and it was overwhelming to the Germans. It was amazing, remarkable, and they weren't prepared for that. To understand the racial makeup of the U.S. national team during the 1936 Olympic Games is to understand a larger history of organized sport in this country. And we're first kind of introduced to this history through the understanding that the AAU didn't allow black clubs to enter until the mid-1920s. The historically black colleges and universities, were, which were the only option at the beginning to mid of the 20th century, didn't offer track and field, which was one of the earliest and one of the cheapest sports, right, that we know that you can you can put on until the 1930s. So we think about in terms of like needing equipment, number of people running, all of these things, the facilities required. And so for black athletes, they had three meets every year to show their talents for a potential Olympics. Penn Relays, CIAA, and the Tuskegee Relay Carnivals. Now, one of the things that I think is a really great note that um, she makes, that Gina Capone-Tiberi makes, is that women were included at the Tuskegee Relay Carnival starting in 1927. This becomes really important because the Olympics started including women in track in 1928. So before women were allowed to compete in the Olympics in track and field, there were already these spaces for black women that were running track at the Tuskegee Relay Carnivals. So this becomes important with someone like Alice Coachman, who wins the high jump from 1939 to 1948 um, at these events and eventually wins a gold medal. When we understand the history of track and field in this country, if we think about the racial makeup of track and field for the U.S. team now, it being primarily black, a lot of this is based on this history of track and field and the unique nature of the sport to black athletic traditions in the United States as this early opening before folks could play um, football, for example, at a predominantly white institution in this country. You could run track so that a lot of the first um, athletes on a college campus, which typically were the first students on a campus that were black, um, were track and field athletes. So there is this really unique nature of track and field to black athletics in the United States. So James Cleveland, Jesse Owens, uh, lived off campus at Ohio State University. African Americans weren't allowed to live on campus, so he lived off campus as he set three records and tied a fourth one in one day. In many ways, Jesse Owens and his early success, as well as someone like Alice Coachman, both really put a lot of racist logics in his Catch-22, where before, African Americans were considered too lazy or immoral to excel athletically. And now, after this achievement, someone like Jesse Owens setting three world records and tying a fourth in one day as a college athlete are now read as naturally athletic. And so track and field is no longer, they're read as having a natural skill set rather than a honed craft. So as we're in, in this larger growth of African-American athletes through track and field, 
there's a complexity of wanting to see a large group of African-Americans succeed on the global stage by black newspapers, for example, and also supporting a boycott as a united front against racial and religious persecution, even as the United States would not support an anti-lynching bill at the time. And the Nazi official paper said black athletes should be excluded. So there's a lot here in, in terms of thinking about the AAU, NAACP, and newspapers supporting a boycott, and, and some of those newspapers were black papers, is that in 1936, 19 athletes were representing the United States that were African-American. And so this complexity is that Nazi papers are saying, don't let black people come. And so this idea of like, well, if Nazis tell me to do something, I'm going to do the opposite of that. There's also the way that you want to see yourself represented as representing your country, right? So this is in many ways kind of infused with this idea of the nation state. We are a part of this country. We are representing this country and what that would mean, right? The largest number of African-Americans representing Team USA um, in 1936 would have been this, these 19 folks. And so there's ways that there's a, an understanding of we don't want what's happening here to be reflected with what's happening um, in Germany, right? There's this way of a coalition building of solidarity of thinking about what the Jewish experience is like in Germany versus what it's like to be a black person, especially in the South, where in the 30s, lynching is rampant. And so I think it's a really good way to push past what Cass is saying is American participation in the Berlin Olympics as essential. And I know we're using the term essential very differently right now when we think about living under coronavirus currently. But I really want to invite you to think about how strong of a word essential is. Is that the most important thing? Were there other political, cultural victories to be made by not competing in these Olympics? That is one question we could ask. The 1936 Olympics are also important because they were the first to be fully organized by a host government, which is the status quo now that we understand. And part of that was the way that the Olympics were being leveraged as political propaganda to push back against preconceived notions about what Nazi Germany was like, to show the quote unquote glory of Nazi Germany. Gina Caboni Tiberi says that, quote, the harder Hitler tried to use the Olympics to endorse the ascendance of Nazi power, the more significant became any defeat of Hitler's athletes, end quote, page 43. So then there is this war before World War II that's occurring at the 1936 Olympics. It's about beating Nazi Germany on the track. So suddenly, she writes, quote, African-American athletes became the quintessential Americans, more American than Negro, as Americans cheered for their representatives in the undeclared war against Nazism, end quote. That's on page 43. So this idea of African-Americans that grew up completely displaced from mainstream society, completely discriminated against, then become more American than Black, more American than African-American. They are Americans. Those are Germans. We beat them. So the solidification of the nation state occurs here where there is an acknowledgement that those are Black people. But the bigger thing is this opiate of the state. We need to beat that country. We will use whoever we can. Those are the best people we have happen to be black. We'll deal with that later. But right now we need them to beat Germany. And so even under those circumstances in beating Nazi Germany across the board in a variety of track and field events, the reaction from Grantland Rice, for example, who is heralded as this legendary sports writer. If you think about Grantland, the website, it's named after Grantland Rice. He says, quote, easily, almost lazily, and minus any show of extra effort, they have turned sports greatest spectacle into, quote, the Black Parade of 1936, end quote. That's on page 44. 
I use that quote to think about the ways that while we can understand the way that these athletes were celebrated as American for beating the Germans, the aftermath of that is the way that the black body is read, the black Olympic body is read in this particular case, is the same kind of racist logic of lazy, no extra effort, even as four gold Olympic medals were won by Jesse Owens, which had never been done in the history of the Olympics at the time. No athlete in the history of the Olympics had won four gold medals. So this idea of easily, lazily, you know, almost everything that's missing is like naturally. There is a way that it can be both this representation of the nation state and then upon victory be read through the lens of race. So I think that's something really interesting to think about when we think about the representation of the nation, when we think about citizenship and who can represent the nation, is to think about the way that the Olympics offers an opportunity for everyone to represent their country in that moment, even as there may be racial, religious, ethnic turmoil in that home country, where you can for a moment be read as wholly American or completely integrated into a society, only to be reprimanded, reduced, and completely ostracized upon your return. So we'll talk about that more, especially when we get to thinking about protest and the Olympics. Next class, we'll talk more um, about the nation state and the Olympics and its history. We'll go into the 50s and 60s and think about what the Cold War games mean through Jules Boykoff's chapter in Power Games. Thanks for listening.